0: My Christian if we haven't had a chance to meet I am the other pastor here at PCTR and it's my uh, honor to be able to come and uh, give the concluding sermon for the series that we've been in for quite a while that series is asking for a friend and um, we're the idea of asking for a friend and it's kind of an internet parlance for I'm asking a question and it might be for a friend but it actually might be for me and uh, We've been trying to wrestle with a variety of different questions along the way Um, And I've really enjoyed hearing how Robbie Kind of answers and wrestles with some of them some of the questions along the way have been the exclusive claims of Christianity Science and faith how do those fit together the problem of evil and why bad things happen How can a loving God allow people to go to hell? Can we trust the Bible? Is the Bible racist? These are some of the the questions we've been wrestling with. If you haven't had a chance to hear those sermons, I encourage you to go to Facebook or our online places where you can actually hear those or the podcasts. Um, I think they can be very helpful. And these are just some of the questions that we've been wrestling with, and we're gonna wrestle with one more tonight. And the question we're wrestling with tonight is, Isn't the Bible regressive and oppressive to women? So we're gonna explore that a little bit. It reminds me a little bit of being a a teacher. There was about a decade where I was a Bible teacher both in California and in Idaho. And um, I thought it was good practice. In fact, I think most pastors should actually be Bible teachers and have to face high school students day in and day out and answer their questions because high school students are becoming more and more bold and they're wrestling with their faith and what it means for their faith to be their own and not just their parents or not just their schools in that case or their church. What does it mean? And so they ask great questions. And I had to learn um, a variety of different things, a a variety of different skills and and I answered the best as I could, but it was always important if I come to the end of something and and I feel like I don't quite have it or if if there's a subject I don't know, it's it's fair to say, I don't know. Let me get an answer and come back to you. I think that's a great principle. As we talk about some questions, sometimes it's fair to say, I don't know, but let me get that for you. And let me work on that because I trust that there are good answers out there to wrestle with these things. And so we're we're working through these questions. We'll work through this last one about women and the Bible and faith and how that fits together. But, of course, it's not going to be exhaustive. It's just impossible. We will, I would wear you out if we went on and on. And uh, we can only do so much in the time that we have. But. Pulling from a, a, a sermon series from I think it's almost a year ago, the Enneagram series is it two? I don't know. It's a blur. I'm a big I'm a big five on the Enneagram cycle, and that means I, I enjoy resources and I, lo- I want to equip you with resources. And so, if this has kind of whet your appetite or you have some other questions that are out there, I want to share some resources that would be able to take some of these things a little bit farther. And I would be thrilled to even be talk to you about some of them so let me just show you a couple books really quick okay I don't get any money for this but I want to resource you I'm an enneagram five here's one by Amy Orr Ewing is believing in God irrational okay this is out there um, and that is a helpful more recent book on apologetics so is believing in God irrational then another one uh, especially helpful for today's topic is Um, it's by Randolph Richards and the title is Paul behaving badly was the apostle a racist chauvinist jerk (laughs) they have answers they wrestle with that but that's that is that's a critique that's out there and so that's that's a good book and then um, uh, another one in that same vein this one's by Mark L Strauss And uh, it's this, Jesus behaving badly, the puzzling paradoxes of the man from Galilee. Okay. Jesus behaving badly. So that focuses in, of course, on the person of Christ. And then um, a book that actually Robbie and I were talking about a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, that kind of fed into some of this, is this one, Um, again, a contemporary one, Confronting Christianity. Twelve hard questions for the world 's largest religion by Rebecca McLaughlin. It looks like that all right, so there 's resources out there i 'll try to get this up on our social media if you 're interested or you can ask me later i 'll have those, but again i'm just I want to resource you because there 's more to be said than we have here, but i 'm try to do the best that I can, okay, Lord willing and um, let me see so part of it. I hope I don't shipwreck myself like I was talking about earlier on the New Jersey coast Um, But I I think there are good answers and when we look at the Bible in context, we can see amazing things Um, it, It might not sound clear to our 21st century ears But when we look at them in context, it makes a real difference and uh, I think there's a straightforward heroes in some cases, like Deborah and we heard that passage read by Michael who crushed it on the names B- biblical names can be kinda tough and he did it he did a great job and so Deborah who was raised up before uh, 3,000 years before we had RGB RGB right the um, uh, notorious RGB the, um, the Supreme Court Justice the first women to the Supreme Court Justice we had Deborah who, um, who was a judge and settled things amongst the people and, um, he, and uh, not only that, was a military leader. And so she just rises up and I think it's an impressive story and she lets the military leader know that I'm going to go with you but um, it, it's part because I am there and they're going to be delivered in my hands and we want to be clear about what's going on here. She's clarifying what's going on, and God's gonna work through my presence there, and and the judge, God is always working through the judges and trying to help them. The people find themselves in difficult situations. They cry out to God for help, and he sends a judge. And Deborah's the judge to help them out. And so straightforward hero in, in those cases. Um, it, but there's other passages that can be a little bit difficult. Some of them come from—they come from the Old Testament, they come from the New Testament. Paul is one that is sometimes pointed out that he's got some pretty hard things to say to our 21st-century ears. Um, but from him also, if we if we take the principle of the full counsel of Scripture, not just one passage, but try to look at multiple passages, take the Bible in its context it, it, it kind of goes back to that that idea um, I remember from geometry. Can you remember all the way back to your geometry class? That you can you can um, you can know that you have a line if you have two points but it's really good to have three. You remember that idea? Because um, it might be a, an arc or or something like that but uh, at least have two ideally three or more. And, and when you do that, you can have an idea of what's going on in Scripture. You don't want to build a whole theology and a whole idea on just one lone passage. There's groups out there that have built themselves uh, theology and uh, part of their Christian or their religious life based on one thing. An example of this would be the baptism of the dead. There is one curious reference to the baptism of the dead in the new testament but we like we don't have anything else that comes at it we only have one point and so we're not quite sure and so we're cautious as orthodox christians about building anything on a single point but if we have two or three or more it gives us an idea of what's going on circling back to Paul, and Paul, if we take Paul in context and look at the, the, the things that he's saying, we can see what's going on and the trajectory of the, of the view and understanding that he's conveying to us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would know about God, and, the, um, and we can help address some of the other passages. And so our reading tonight actually comes from the pen of Paul. It's Galatians chapter 3 verses 23 through 29 and uh, Let's hear God's word for us tonight Before the coming of this faith we were held under custody under the law Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all, for, all, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus." If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's word for us today. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to wrestle with your word. That we would come to understand it a bit more, enabled by your Holy Spirit, and that we would come to know you through it as you reveal yourself, as you reveal your heart, heart for all of humanity, and especially that half of humanity, women, and your heart for them as well as all. We pray all of this in the bold name of Jesus. Amen. In Christ, as Christians, we are all one. And our value isn't in our identity, our our gender, uh, or or external things, our social status, but it's in Christ we have our value, and we are all together in that. And this comes from Paul in this uh, this uh, amazing passage that there is an intrinsic value to the people to, to people, and that it um, that is how God views us. We have this tendency to view one another, of course, as the world views uh, one another, and, and it can be tough. We fall into using categories that we can quickly use, and gender and uh, you know, outward appearance can uh, lead to lots of different conclusions. Uh, some, sometimes right, sometimes very, very wrong. And it's important to look upon one another and, and, and peoples different than ourselves with the eyes of God. Lovingly. That, and realizing that not only has Christ come for us, but he's came for them and loves them fiercely. Fiercely. And we need to remember that. And so this passage points at that. And so we are going to explore this and a variety of other things about what it means, or the good hope that we really have from Scripture for women, especially. And so guys, come along, because a lot of it applies to you and how we interact and, and all of that. I'm going to especially point towards the love of God for women, but that doesn't mean you're excluded for it. I'm just emphasizing this this one time, here and now for the, this question that we're wrestling with. So I encourage you to come along with me. And it, it is a challenge because there's so many struggles for women out there. I remember when I was a teacher, um, I, I referenced being a teacher, I remember being a teacher in California for, um, for a, a while back and one of my students had come to me, she was really struggling and really is, was starting to have a dark outlook on life. I'm not gonna use her real name for the sake of this for confidentiality, and it goes out on the internet, I'm not gonna use her name, I'll call her Rachel. But Rachel uh, had been abused by uh, an extended family member and that extended family member was all around. And she was not being believed by family and she felt caught and didn't know what to do. And, And I was in a place where she trusted to tell me that and and open that up and I let her know that that it is wrong that it's absolutely wrong what was happening to her and that something needed to be done and I was gonna help connect her to resources to be able to help her out but it's a very real struggle that happens all over the place and we f- and um, people often feel boxed in and um, don't know what to do Um, our our culture has struggled with openly addressing certain things and um, women have felt the impact of this for for really for eternity Um, it carries on Lord willing we're a little bit better but we'll, we'll talk about that and what it means to actually be better but this is a struggle that we face but there is hope and I want to share with you three areas of how there is specific hope that we can have from Scripture, the first one uh, comes from uh, Scripture itself at the beginning. Robbie referenced this uh, last week as he was talking about racism, and I'm and I'm going to build on that as well here and now. And that comes from Genesis chapter one, where there where God is creating. All things and creates humanity both men and women if you read chapter one it's men and women and it's not only good not only men and women good it's very good everything else had been good but when he creates men and women it's very good and so gender had been part of the plan God's plan and the intrinsic value of humans both men and women comes from God And it doesn't matter what happens to us or or what situation we are in, there is an intrinsic value. And as we come to these situations um, uh, of abuse, of fairness, of being uh, oppressed or those types of things, we need to remember that humans have an intrinsic value from the image of God. And that might sound pretty easy for us, like that's kind of a given these days, but I'll tell you that was not the case in biblical times. Just one example of how that was not the case, this basic intrinsic value was thought of, uh, comes from Plato, Plato the 5th century philosopher. And he put out there this idea that only men were created in um, in God's image and that only men had the opportunity um, post-life to be able to be in the stars is kind of how he conveyed it. Um, it's, it's not quite heaven, he had a slightly different idea. But if, if, if the men were bad, they would actually be transformed uh, after that first life and they would actually become women. So gentlemen in the room, you are forewarned, right? <laughs> no. Um, Yeah, so he is not believing this. And then there were people who tried to write Christian uh, writings and included these types of ideas. There was this idea in uh, a text found in the, it's called the Gospel of Thomas and Nag Hammadi in Egypt. And it was made a big deal of when Dan Brown and those books came out like, oh, what about the other gospels? There were other gospels. What about the Gospel of Thomas? Well, the Gospel of Thomas, you can look it up. You can search it on the Internet. It's not very long. You can get an English translation. And if you go to the last chapter of the Gospel of Thomas, in it, it's uh, Peter asks Jesus near the end of his earthly ministry uh, about what's going to happen with, when people go to heaven, and he asks specifically about Mary, mother of Jesus. Peter's, Peter's like, what, what's going to happen? And, and Jesus says, oh, that's okay. I'll make her a man, and then she can go to heaven. It's the same idea, and and, and by the way, that's why that's not included in our Bibles, because that is way off base, and that is not substantiated, all right? And the church recognized what was inspired and what wasn't inspired. But this is an idea that was out there, and um, it was completely contrary, and the Bible on page one refutes this idea that there's an intrinsic value in not just men, but in women also. And so I think that's one thing, and you can trace that through, and through Scripture in a variety of different places. It shows up in prophecies in the prophet Joel, and then in the book of Acts, that prophecy is brought up the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two and three. There's this prophecy that's referred to. It's the day of Pentecost, and everyone is seeing people speaking, uh, enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak different languages, and they're like, "What's going on here?" And, um, and Peter actually says what's happening here is the fulfillment of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit would come upon the people, both young and old, uh, both men and women. And there, there's a recognition that all receive the Holy Spirit. It is true uh, in Old Testament times that only um, Only men could serve as priests, but they had a special anointing from the Holy Spirit. But but the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes upon both men and women, both old and young. They receive the Holy Spirit. And we are in those times since Acts 2 and 3. Very good news. So here's a second thing and a second point that we can kind of catch the trajectory of Scripture and what's going on. And it's this that God is the foundation of our morality God is the foundation of our morality now in the church that might kind of be a given but I'll tell you our world is really struggling with this and they want to say that there is no objective reality and in the academy amongst like university students they say that there is uh, no objective reality which is fascinating because if you just listen long enough you can hear the passion you got to hear their hearts and their passion for social justice and social bu- social justice is something that should be addressed and worked out but here's the thing I- I- in social justice if you're writing wrongs how do you know what a wrong is what's your standard for knowing what's wrong where does that come from are we just making this up if we're just all a collection of atoms then and there is no objective morality, then why wouldn't it be might is right? Or or something else like that, or some caste system. Where does that objective standard come from? But in Christ, we recognize that there is an objective standard, and that um, that applies, in our, our morality is grounded in God and what he has for us. And so, I'm putting this up there, but you could say, okay, well, what about the Bible and the Old Testament where there are passages that talk about rape, that talk about polygamy, that talk about incest, that talk about female oppression, that they talk about violence against women. And there's times it gets really bad. the the book of Judges that we got Deborah from that she's in the early part of Judges you read the book of Judges it gets progressively worse and women feel the brunt of that in a unique wrong way but why are these here is is scripture affirming these things and and commending these things for us when we look at them we can see clearly that they are condemned and that they are not being held up as the standard but as something that is wrong and needs to be addressed and the problems that are arising in the book of judges and elsewhere points again to the need for a savior to come the Messiah to address this because people aren't able to do it on their own even though the Holy Spirit is raising up judges and working through it's not enough and and they're just spiraling down and worse and worse but we can so we have things that are there but they're not commended they're not encouraged they're actually uh, included and it, it, it's actually encouraging to know that they're there, that the Bible isn't so squeamish that it won't go and address these horrible things that are realities in biblical time and they're realities for us today. The Bible doesn't squirm away from that. Um, another example of this there was a, the atheist Christopher Hutt Hitchens who once accused the Bible of allowing. God's people to buy a wife like you would buy a horse as if a woman was a mere possession. And So he seized on a passage and lifted it up, this idea of buying a bride. Um, And without any context he put that out there as a critique of the Christian faith in the Bible. The thing is when we look at this in context we find something that's actually very different. That's not really characterized as that. And, and just because um, uh, um, money is given in the midst of a relationship changing there doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, and they're not necessarily buying a bride. Even today, in India, there is still a, a custom, a practice, of the um, bride's family giving gifts to the groom's family. And in that context, no one thinks that the family is buying the groom. that that just doesn't come up. But there's this exchanging there and there's these customs. And so what's going on? If we dig into this a little bit more and we can see what's going on, why is this exchange of money happening here? And I think there's a, it's not I think, if you look at the historical information and, and what's going on here, you can see some realities. One is this that um, giving some gifts um, to the family of the bride is expressing ass- the seriousness of the relationship, that, that this person isn't just casually interested, but they are actually directly uh, and seriously interested in, in pursuing you know, courting and uh, eventual marriage. Uh, there's a whole kind of betrothal process in the midst of that. Additionally, there is a protection for that bride. If that, that woman who could become a bride ever um, becomes a, wit- a widow or if the, the marriage comes apart, the money that had been given to the family, the, the understanding was that money was to be set apart, not just put into the, the family's general funds, but it was to be set apart and then that would be something that would protect that bride that wife if she found herself in a difficult situation and she and her husband was no longer there either through death or uh, another difficult situation she could be provided for it's actually meant as a means of protection and honoring and respect and and having a long-term view and so as we look into these things we can see a little bit more about what's going on here Another example, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, where it says this, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Okay. (laughs) So this doesn't necessarily make for easy reading to our 21st century ears, right? You know, like it wouldn't be hard to raise your hand like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, What's happening here? wars battles were a reality, and um, people left over after the conflict had happened was a reality and uh, and the, through scripture we have these directions to set up an arrangement here that that the, the Israelites were not just to um, take the bride's or take women that had been left over after this conflict, after her, perhaps the family had been wiped out, her city, her country had been wiped out, that there was to be a respectful period of mourning, and then an opportunity to come together and to see if it works, and if it doesn't work, they're not allowed to sell this woman into slavery. She's allowed to go wherever she wants okay so it still sounds a little bit strange but it's but that's part of the reality and so let's take a an actual another type of setup and this came from um, 2014 and when I read this to you you might have some recollection if you were paying attention to this in 2014 but there was a pamphlet that came out from Isis and Isis recognized that uh, women were being abused as they took over certain areas. ISIS was spreading quite quickly. And so they put out a a pamphlet to tell their soldiers what they could and couldn't do as there were women left over after an armed conflict. And so ISIS puts it like this. Uh, And and there was, um, let me see. Uh, this was dealing with the Yazidi and the Christian women as they were taking over that area but uh, amongst other things the pamphlet states that in accordance with the Quran it was permissible for the soldiers to have sexual intercourse with the female captives immediately upon capture immediately and not only that she could be taken as a wife uh, that she, that, I'm sorry, that she need not be taken as a wife, but could only be, uh, could, uh, could, her only status might be a sexual slave. That wasn't allowed in 20, in, in Deuteronomy 21. She, it had to be, she had to become your bride. But here, that's not the case. She doesn't have to be married. She could just be a slave. And um, that it's permissible to sell her or give her as a gift if the, pers- if the man did not want her. That was part of the directions of it. And then most horrifically, most horrifically um, intercourse could be permitted if she had not reached puberty. This is a 21st century example. And, and when we have this example, and it was even worse before, or where there were no rules, um, women were in horrible situations when the conflict came and they were still alive and standing and in light of that we can recognize if we're looking at it from the other way around we can see that Deuteronomy 21 is actually providing some protection you couldn't just take over and and um, act so boldly but there was an honoring of the women allowing them to mourn what had happened and allowed that they had to be married and not a slave. And if it didn't work out, you can't sell them as a slave and they were to be set free and they, and they didn't get isolated, they didn't get corralled off, they could go wherever they wished. And so when we look at some of these things, we can get a, a, a different... And a point of view when we look at them in context and what it means instead of just lifting things out um, unfortunately uh, there was some dignity and, and women were involved in a variety of different aspects of life it, cultural life in Old Testament times everything but being a priest um, uh, but in New Testament times, it seems that it got more difficult for women. It's a, it's a reality. And um, what historians and commentators um, seem to think is that it, uh, it came out of um, the, the Greek and Roman influences like Plato. Remember Plato, that only man can go to heaven and women cannot. Um, only, in, I didn't say it before, but they thought that only men have souls and women do not that type of thinking impacted this Palestinian, Middle Eastern area. And the situation did become difficult, more difficult for women. So much so that we had situations uh, where in, one Jew, in the first century, Jewish historian writes that uh, the women sa- said in the law, uh, if anyone were to teach a woman the law, they're basically committing like, lechery. And you can't even teach women the law. It was forbidden. And not only that, but women were thought to be more emotional and they couldn't control their desires. And um, when uh, both a man and a woman came together and acted immorally, the man was let off and the woman would be blamed. We even see this in Scripture, right? In the end of John. Uh, I think it's chapter 7 verse 53 and it's the beginning of chapter 8 where they catch a woman in adultery and you you noticed there's only a woman there right where's where's the guy it takes two to tango they didn't bring the guy what's going on there's this idea that it was the woman's fault and not the man the man got off that's wrong that's messed up okay right yeah that's messed up that's wrong that's not uh, correct but amazingly, Jesus, in the midst of this milieu, in the midst of this culture, he has a distinctly different view. And in that passage in John, he does, he's not putting up with it. Now he he addresses it in a way that basically says, "Men, you cannot condemn her for this." Right? He says, uh, "Ye who is without the first, uh, who is without sin, cast the first stone." Right? And the eldest left first and the younger eventually went away. He addresses that and he in a variety of different ways in the midst of this culture that was not respectful to women and they were oppressed he had a very different approach in 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 John he talks not just with um, uh, Nicodemus the the religious teacher of the country but he also talks with a Samaritan woman at the well and even his disciples are shocked but Jesus had no problem talking to a Samaritan woman and and convinces her and some would say she even got the opportunity to say the first evangelistic sermon cuz she leaves her pond the disciples come back after they have the um, Jesus and the Samaritan woman have the conversation she runs off and goes into the city and says come and see a man who uh, told me everything I ever did could he be the Messiah she doesn't even fully have it, but she's drawing people to Jesus. She's bringing people to Jesus, because Jesus had no problem talking to her. He looked differently. And he, um, and he um, was concerned about women that they be treated respectfully. Remember the account of Mary and Martha. That, Mar- that Jesus came into town and is staying at their house, and Martha is all busy and um, trying to make the house all night or all nice. And um, but sister Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet, and um, and so Martha goes and, and and doesn't go to her sister but goes to Jesus. Jesus basically tell tell my sister to come and help me, and Jesus is having none of it. Jesus is having none of it, and, and, and he's saying she is concerned about what's most important. The, this is, Mr., this is uh, Christian Johnson paraphrase, right? Okay, so you can go there and read it yourself. But uh, she, Jesus basically says it's fine for her to be there. And not only that, it says she's sitting at Jesus' feet. To be sitting at the feet of a rabbi is to, cons- is to be considered that you are a close follower, an important follower. And she's receiving an education, which is different than that law code that I read to you before, that women were not allowed to be educated about the law or anything like that. Jesus is acting flagrantly against that, that tradition in that first century and allowing her to be there. And not only that, saying it's more important. It's more important. And we see this in a variety of different ways what's going on here. Let me give you one third, the third point. Um, I'll wrap up with this. The third point is this, that it's only in God that we can have ultimate justice. It's only in God that we can have ultimate justice. Our culture, I said I'd get around back to to this, but we're trying to correct lots of wrongs. Social justice, um, inequality amongst genders and, and a variety of different things. And we're trying to do it with legislation. We're trying to do it with politics. And the challenge is that doesn't change the human heart, it doesn't transform the human heart. We can't legislate ourselves out of this horrible problem that we're in. But Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about how um, it's not enough just to follow the law. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, talks about a variety of different things. Um, that it's, that it, of course you must not murder someone, but basically you can't hate them in your mind. If you hate them in your mind, you're just as wrong as doing it uh, physically. He says, it's not enough to not commit adultery. If you think lustfully about another person, um, you're, it's just as bad as doing it yourself. And Jesus is recognizing that you can't basically legislate, and you can't follow rules out of the problem, the deep, deep problem that we have. It runs right through us and through the human heart. And it's only in a transformation of the human heart that we can have hope. And all these things that we're talking about, inequalities and abuse and all these types of things, our greatest hope is in the person of Christ who can change the heart. He speaks to that uh, in in the Sermon on the Mount in a variety of different places. He, He doesn't want us just to be rule followers. He wants us to be transformed, that we would be part of his family, that we would be able to be with God forever and enjoy his presence, that he would literally be the light of the lives that we live into eternity. And it's in him that we can have ultimate justice. We can have programs. We can have earthly um, compensation and a variety of different things, wh- whatever it is, uh, we can force people to say things, but the problem lies deeper in the human heart. There was a guy that um, lived in the Soviet Union and spent a number of years in a Soviet uh, prison who, uh, in the, this was in the 1940s, his name was Solzhenitsyn, and he said this at one point. It's If it was it only uh, if only it was so simple uh, it, if only we could if there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and, and it would only be necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and how willing are people to destroy a part of their own heart Piece of wisdom that points towards this reality that we need a heart transformation. A heart transformation in how we interact with one another. And and we need God's help in that. We can't legislate our way out of it, we can't do politics out of it, but we need true transformation. And as we do, we can interact as God intended, recognizing the intrinsic value. In everyone, not just men, not just women, not just old, not just young, everybody. And I think these are just some of the dots that we see in scripture that point us towards a direction. And yes, there are hard things. And we could spend time and if we need to wrestle with some of those, we can wrestle with some of those. But the reality is that when we take them in context, more often than not, it's a lot easier to see what's going on, and that God expresses concern and care for all of humans, but he, uh, there are provisions specifically to honor and respect women. We see this in Jesus' own life, in his, his ministry, and his very reconciliation, or his resurrection. When he was resurrected, it was not a man that he chose. He could have figured it out so that Nicodemus, the religious teacher of Israel, could have been there and seen that, but he didn't. He chose Mary, not Mary, mother of Jesus, there's several different Marys, but it's Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by spirits. It was her. The the single most important event in human history, and he had a woman be there as the witness. In the first century, Robbie mentioned this last week, in the first century, women's testimony by itself was not held as reliable. Jesus flies in the face of that. Has Mary Magdalene, a, a, a woman that has a difficult background, but he didn't care. He or she is the first witness to the resurrection. And I think that is the hope that we have in Christ, that we can be transformed, that we would see a new way forward, that we can respect the intrinsic value in all of us. Might that be so as we are transforming along the way? Please join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. There's a lot of it. And um, some is really easy to listen. It is so sweet. We love the passages that we highlight. Some of it to our 21st century ears is a little bit hard to swallow. It can even seem a little bit bitter. But Lord, we ask that you would guide us. You would help us to find the answers that we're not afraid to turn to you and and pose our questions and see what it is that you are caring about and how you can transform us, how you can give us hope. Might we have your hope this day, the, 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 the days ahead, all the days of our life, that we would get to experience and know you through your Son, who fiercely loves us. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.